with inspirational guests from across the world. This is Inspire Radio. Hello and welcome to Inspired Conversations with me, Ruth Owen. Today, my guest is Mark Mardell, and you may know his name. He's a household name here in the UK and probably well known to some of the developed world's best known politicians. And he's probably been a thorn in their side for most of that time, too. He has been at the forefront of reporting and analysing major world events for radio and television for more than 25 years. He joined the BBC's political unit in 1989 and went on to be the political editor of Newsnight, where he produced A Week in Politics. He also became the BBC's chief political correspondent for radio and television. And by the way, he wrote a children's book on how to succeed in television. In 2005, Mark became the BBC's first Europe editor. And in 2009, he moved to the US, where he reported on the 2012 election and the Barack Obama presidency. At the moment, he is producing a documentary called Brexit, A Love Story, and now presents The World at One and The World This Weekend for BBC Radio 4. So, I'm exhausted just introducing you, Mark, but welcome to to Inspired Conversations. Thank you very much. I'm delighted to be with you and uh, thank you for having me. It's so amazing to be able to talk to you because you seem to have batted around the world for the last quarter of a century. So are you now in one place for a, a bit of time? Well, I'm locked down. I have what they call underlying conditions. So I decided pretty early on to stay at home. So, I mean, yes, I'm back in the UK for... Uh, the foreseeable future, but I'm also in my home in Banstead in Surrey for the foreseeable future, broadcasting from here, working from here, but uh, locked down nice and tight. Well, it must be quite a nice change actually for yourself and for your family to have you around. You know, it is. I mean, I'm really quite surprised because I hate routine. I love travelling. I get bored quite easily, but I've loved this. And, you know, I'd say that mindfully, the fact that many people have suffered terribly. It's a terrible experience for a lot of people. But just speaking personally, I've loved it. I've got two of my three children here and my wife. We're having a great time. It's a bit like, you know, when you go away for a nice weekend, you say, wow, have we only been here for three days? It seems like a week. It's, it's the reverse of that. You've no sooner had your morning coffee than it's time to go to bed. It seems to fly by the time. So we've, we've been doing some really nice cooking and we've, my eldest son seems a master of sushi and Japanese dishes. And we've been playing a game called Catan, which is a sort of strategy game. And we've been watching the magnificent series Succession, which is loosely based on a real media empire, I think, which is fantastic. So, um, and I've been working very, very hard. Yeah, well, I was going to ask you, are you busier than ever now that you're in one place? It does seem that way. It's a bit weird. I started off, as soon as I locked down, finishing off as much as I could that series you were talking about, Brexit, A Love Story, which is about the details of us leaving the uh, European Union, how it all started, bringing it sort of just about up to date. So I started off doing that. And then I'm still doing not all of my programmes, but most of them. I've got in front of me a microphone, popped on a book about how to make uh, pickles. So it's just about reaches my mouth. And I've got a unit called a Comrex which is, I guess, about the size of two baked bean tins that makes makes me connect. And that's all we've got to connect. And, and I've been doing a series of programmes on how Trump's cope with the coronavirus, about how Brazil copes or doesn't cope with the coronavirus. One that's just gone out just before we were talking about prospects of Joe Biden, whether he's the new FDR. 
And uh, I also did something on Taiwan and China. So all from my, my dining room, I've been talking to people all over the world. I mean, the weirdest experience was when I was doing the Taiwan one. So I was here in, in Surrey. My producer was in her home in, I don't know whereabouts, in London. The engineer was recording it all in London. The translator was in Canada and the guest was in Taiwan. So all over the world from our front rooms, we managed to get something together. It's quite extraordinary, isn't it? I mean, do you feel like you're missing out on something by not travelling and seeing these people face to face and soaking up the atmosphere of the country that you're reporting on? I, th- I think inevitably you do. I mean, I, I, I've sort of made myself mentally not miss it and, you know, not worry about that too much because it's just impossible. But certainly when I was doing a piece about Brazil and talking to a reporter about what it was like going on these boats up the Amazon, and the music at night and the sound of the jungles. You think, I want to go there, I want to be there. And equally <laughs> when, which I, I have been to Brazil, but I've never been up the Amazon. And equally when I was doing a piece on Trump's coping with the economy, I was talking to a farmer in, um, in Alabama where I have been and know reasonably well. But a place I love, I love the deep south and uh, for all its many and varied sins. And I just thought I'd really like to go there again and be there. So... Yeah, I do miss it. And, you know, and, and just on a personal basis, we were, I booked three weeks leave in the in July. We were going to go with all the family to possibly to Georgia, the, the country Georgia, not the, uh, not the state, but we hadn't quite decided. And yeah, I mean, it, it, it's something I do miss. And I do, you know, something I feel quite militant about, quite adamant about, I think reporters have to be reporters. The media thrives, should thrive on getting out there, talking to people, talking to real people. I think it's a big mistake, of, without getting too heavy, of the American media. You talk about unemployment and it'll be three people, usually white guys in a studio talking about unemployment. They don't go out and talk to people at the factory gates who've just been chucked out of a job. I think we often get criticised in the BBC, or I do, for doing vox pops, particularly during the Brexit time. But I think unless you listen to what people say, you don't get a picture. And if you go to enough small towns or enough town cities, talk to enough people, you do get a picture of what people are saying. Well, it, it's vital, really, because surely the BBC's job is to represent the voice of the country. So it's, it's terribly important to be that voice. And do you feel that you've had a big responsibility to be a reporter for the BBC? Yes, yes. I mean, I don't want to take myself too seriously or certainly don't want to be pompous about it. But I do think it's vital for democracy and an open society that we do have good reporting. I think one of the worst things that's happened recently is the decline in local news. Because certainly, you know, I'm talking about here and and the United States, and um, I'm not so sure whether that's happened in the same way in Europe, but it certainly has in the U.S., and, you know, it's, it's a vital source of stories for national reporters trying to find out what's going on. You turn to the local newspapers. It's almost the cliche of radio journalism. You turn up in a small town and talk to the local newspaper editor. But it's important because they do know what's going on. And yes, I completely agree that it's, it's a way of keeping your finger on the pulse. I mean, people get upset about box pops, as we call them going out and talking to people. Because on the TV news, you end up with, you know, three clips of about 30 seconds, or not even 30 seconds, of five seconds each going, I'm for it, I'm against it, I think it's all right, it sorts off. And it's meaningless, because you balance it. But if, as I say, you know, every weekend recently, I mean, in the past couple of years, for the world this weekend, I've been going to small towns up and down Britain. And you do get a finger on the pulse. I mean, one of the things that I thought was really interesting, before the election, before the Tories slogan, just get it done. People say, you say, what do you think about Brexit? Oh, just get it done. So people, you know, this was focus grouped. 
they found people were saying it and they used it as their own slogan. And tell me, do you remember always as a child wanting to be a political reporter? I mean, how did you get into politics? In, I mean, you know, that's a really interesting thing, question, because I was thinking about this this morning. And a number of my mates from school say, oh, you always knew what you wanted to do. You always wanted to be a reporter. You always wanted to be in the media. And I remember at university being decidedly undecided and dithery and uncertain what I wanted to do. And it's true I'd worked on the, the school magazine. It's true I used to, even though I hate sports and hate football, run up and down the football pitch going, and Ted Jemison's passed it to Smith. You know, for the low, for the, we had a little sort of cassette service <laughs> on the school. So I was doing stuff like that. But at university, I thought maybe I want to go into publishing because I'd worked in publishing in the summer holidays, just, you know, very menial jobs. But I mean, I thought that was quite an attractive world. And um, luckily, I sort of, and I feel I rather fell into it. I got a you know, place on a course at the London College of Printing, as it then was, radio journalism course. And sort of stuff came together in my head. I found I loved writing. I'd always liked writing. I think I'm reasonably good at sort of speaking off the cuff. I could do that. I like meeting people and talking to people. I like history and I like politics. And so, you know, it just came together. Wow, this is something that well, I don't think I thought this is something I could be good at. I probably did. I'm quite arrogant when I was that age. Aren't we all? <laughs> Aren't we are, yes, yes. Youth is wonderful for arrogance, isn't it? You can conquer the world when you're 19. You have to look back from the peaks and find you didn't conquer it now. But anyway, I thought um, I thought it's something that would really suit me and seems to have done so. So how did you progress from doing your radio journalism course? How did you get into radio and why did you then go into television? How did that happen? Well, you may remember, and I say you may, well, maybe we should be open with the listeners. I always believe in an openness. We do know each other from way back. Don't we? Well, when we, talk, when we talk a long way back, we're talking 1986, Mark. It is a very long time ago. Yes, in the mists of time and memory. But uh, it's not nice to talk, uh, talk to you again. Anyway, but uh, I'm saying that in those days, it was when, or when, I, when I came out of college, London College of Printing, it was when commercial radio was just opening up. It was a new beginning and they were very serious about their news operation because they did want to be seen as, yeah, they were pop stations, but they wanted to say, we've got decent news operations. We're not second fiddle to the BBC. We're not just driven by the advertising. We are serious people. And of course, at the London College of Printing, I'm not getting paid by them. I don't know why I've said it three times now. Sorry about that. Um, but at my college, a lot of the lecturers and guys in charge were from ex-BBC. They had to be if they knew about broadcasting because there was nobody else in this country who was doing it, which is an amazing thought, but it's true. Yeah. And so a lot of their mates had gone and set up commercial radio stations. So that's how I got my first interview because uh, one of the guys in charge was a friend of the guy who was setting up the radio station, Radio T's. And um, I went for an interview. Here's a, here's a life lesson for you. I went up, as I said, full of that, however old I was, 23, 22-year-old arrogance, and thought, I'm a great broadcaster. I know all there is to know about broadcasting. I don't need to know about the region, but uh, I'm a bit bored on the, on the train up, so I'll read the Northern Echo. And when I got into the interview, one of the questions I remember is, you know, what would you lead on today? And I, I can't remember what the answer was, but it was whatever was on the front page of the Echo, the closure of some steel mill or, uh, or in ICI or something like that. And they told me afterwards I got the job because of my local knowledge. <laughs> oh, wow. Well, here's an interesting thing. My first job in the regions was at Radio Tees. It's great, wasn't it? Oh, I, just, I had the best time ever. 
It was just amazing. <laughs> I remember sort of doing the midnight shift and lacing up the, uh, I'm trying to remember what it is, lacing up the tape for the person on the midnight shift. And I once made a horrible boo-boo and um, got the things in the wrong order. And of course, it's not like I'm talking about the details of how you used to play radio in the old days. If you're a cartridge, you stab a button and it just plays the tape and yes. you put the next one in. But if it's laced up on a spool, reel to reel, you can't vary the order if you're the only one in the building pressing a button, playing it. And so I sort of did it all in the wrong order and got the guy to sound like a complete idiot on air. I to apologise very severely. <laughs> well, I do remember working endless hours. I probably worked 15 hours a day and you know, I was being paid an absolute pittance, but I was doing the job of a producer. But I just had the best time ever. I thought it was, it was just such a privilege to be working in radio. Is that how you felt about it? Oh, yeah, and huge camaraderie with the people you're working with, a great bunch of people. And I just, yeah, just felt really enthusiastic about it and about learning the craft as much as the journalism. I think, think I mean, you know, now I wouldn't be poncy about it and I wouldn't say this, but I think at that time I'd say I was a broadcaster rather than a journalist. That's probably right because I didn't understand journalism, didn't know what was going on, although it was a great grounding in it because I think at that time we had the launch of the Social Democratic Party, the SDP, one of the guys who was quite big in that, Bill Rogers, was big in the region. So it was a political education as well. And actually, again, I hesitate because it sounds terribly precious and I don't mean to be like that. But it's a huge privilege getting into people's lives and talking to them yeah. sometimes at their very lowest. And I remember talking to people who'd been burned out of their homes or their children had gone missing or in you know, one or two cases murders and it's a privilege that people do let you into their lives and something I found out you know people say I mean it's not the sort of journalism I do at all nowadays but people say how can you go up to people and talk to them you know bother them pester them when they're in that sort of low point and I, I often found people wanted to talk about their loved ones who had died they wanted just you know sort of talk about that. and as long as you handle it sensitively and aren't an idiot about it I, th I think you know, again, it's a service that you're doing there. Not to them particularly, but I mean, I, th I think it's not as horrible as some people from outside the game would think. No, I agree. If you do it with compassion, because we're all human beings, then I think it is a service. And I think it, it helps for those people suffering to get their message out, because quite often they feel powerless in the face of some disaster or whatever. I remember when I was at Radio Tees, and I was reporting on the Cleveland child abuse scandal, which you may remember went on and on for, for years, and I cut my journalistic teeth there. But I remember being so humbled talking to these families who were suffering so terribly, and they wanted to express themselves and how they felt because they felt they didn't have a voice. Do you find that when you're reporting on rather more hard-nosed things like politics and international relations, do you find that it's the same kind of thing? Do you have to talk to people with compassion or, or do you just like to cut to the chase with politicians? I think it depends on the story and the circumstance. I think even there, I mean, you know, yes, it's not quite the same sensitivity, but I think it is about showing genuine empathy. And I think that if you show that setting aside whatever your personal beliefs will be, and of course you have to do that in the BBC and, and in ITN and Sky and whatever in broadcasting, but talking to people with empathy, trying to understand, trying to get under their skin, why do they think this? Which is all the more interesting if you don't agree with them. I mean, if you, if you agree with them privately, you know why they think that, because it's probably similar to you. 
But if you don't agree with them, showing that, that you are genuinely listening. And it's something that you can do in political reporting because it's not you're in and out within two minutes. You're not sort of turning up in a place and have to report on, on something and get it on the nightly news. You do have to get it on the nightly news. But there's also fellow periods where you hang around in... You, you talk, we talk about lobby journalists. The lobby is, is many things, but it's also a physical place, the place that MPs walk through before they go into the House of Commons. And you hang around there in dull afternoons and just chat to people and you develop a range of contacts, or at least I think decent journalists do. And, um, and, and you know, talk, talk to people about a subject and you get a range of views and you have to talk to people on all sides. And as I say, I suppose the tricksy part is if you give them the impression that you do agree with what they're saying, that's not necessarily a bad thing until you get found out. <laughs> you, do, you never tell somebody you agree with them, but you, as I say, it's a, it's a sympathetic way of listening to people. The other thing is, though, you also have to be willing to, it's going to use the phrase stick the knife in, maybe that's too nasty, but I think you have to be dispassionate. And even if somebody's somebody you regard as somebody you like or regard as a friend, even if they're a politician and they've done something wrong or, you know, it starts going wrong if you treat your sources better than you would somebody who's not an important source. And that happens too much, I'm afraid. Well, it must be walking a really fine line between building rapport with people that you want to uh, use, if you like, as a source and uh, as a way into what's going on on the inside, but also to be able to hold them to account if they're doing something that you feel is is not in the public interest. Yeah, that's right. Absolutely. And I think it's always right. Well, there are different sorts of reporters and it's probably right for an organisation to have a range of people with a range of different approaches. I mean, I was always more, I uh, worked with Jeremy Paxman of Newsnight for a long time and he liked, I don't think it was his quote, but he liked to quote somebody who said, the relationship between journalists and politicians should be that between a dog and a lamppost. That, <laughs> That's that a great one. <laughs> something that I, I do bear in mind. I, and I think the closer that people are to power and the top of power, the more you have to think about that. I mean, I always got on very well. I mean, the, one of the periods I was covering that was, was the intense Maastricht rebellion against John Major's government. And I got on very well with the Maastricht rebels and talked to them, you know, most days and put up unattributable quotes. And people sometimes don't like unattributable quotes, but they won't say things on the record. So you, what else do you do? Um, on the screen on Newsnight and, you know, used cartoons to tell the story and all sorts of wacky devices. But you know, sort of those people you don't necessarily burn because they're they're not in power, they're rebelling against the power. Um, people higher up, you can have more of a go with, and they've got tough skins, they know you're doing your job. And I think actually, again, without sounding, wanting to sound pompous, they respect you if you do have a go with them. I mean, I know a couple of senior politicians who I've been really pretty rough on in the past, and I mean, they're not friends of mine or anything like that. I don't want to go around to their house or anything. But I mean, that I think they, they talk to me in a friendly way these days. They seem to like coming on the programme. So I think they do respect it if you, and you, obviously if you give everybody an equal kicking when the kicking is deserved or, or needed. I mean, something I'm, I'm, even though I'm all long in the tooth and have been around a fair bit, a different sort of interview style for radio longer programmes rather than the quick news burst is something I'm still learning and I think it's interesting, sometimes more discursive, what do you think about this philosophical approach works? Sometimes you have to go in hard and say 16 times, why do you say that? Why, what makes you think that? The political scene now is always evolving, isn't it? 
But you have had so many different viewpoints or you've worked from many different viewpoints and you've worked in the UK, you've worked in the US, you've worked in Europe. Are politicians all the same or does it depend on where they are and where do you prefer to be based? Oh, that's a couple of really interesting questions. Are they all the same? Um, I think one thing that many politicians, most politicians have in common is a huge ego. They're driven by a sense of recognition. They want to be applauded. They want to be looked up to. That's not necessarily a bad thing. Um, Obviously, most of them do have some sort of drive of public service or belief in the ideas of their party they want to see implemented. But I think the ego is is quite a large part of their makeup often. Um, They wouldn't get there without that. It's a tough life. It's all the people sort of deride politicians. It's a lot of work. It's hard work and it's it's tough to get to the top. So I think that there's that element. I mean, there's the old joke about anybody who, any people who deserve power are those who don't want it. And there's an element of truth in that. But I think you need to be quite tough. So they're similar like that, I think. Um, are they different in different countries? I don't know. You see parallels all over the world, don't you? I mean, I don't know Bolsonaro, but you can see, um, you know, I just I did something on Brazil recently, but you can see elements of populists in many countries in him. You can see elements of Trump in many people here. Um, so I think there's political ideas and styles are reflected. Um, where do I like working? Well, that's a really hard one because I've enjoyed all my jobs. Um, when I came back from America, I wanted to go into work in Europe again. That didn't happen for various reasons. Um, but I'd love to have done that. But if I had a choice of where I worked, um, which I don't and won't probably leave the UK, but I'd like to work in China and that region. I think that's fascinating. It's something I've educated myself on. And now and there, politicians, well, they may be also driven by ego and what they believe, but it's a very different game, obviously. Very different. I mean, I don't imagine that you'd be able to get to them in the same way that you can get to politicians here or in the US even. No, I think definitely not. Certainly not as a, as a British national. And I think, you know, for, for Chinese journalists, they find it very difficult as well. Um, I mean, it'd probably be impossible for me. I'm not a Chinese speaker, but I mean, reading academics, if you talk to, talk with, they talk to other academics, they talk to people the ministries you get a flavor of what's going on but yeah i mean that's one of the things that what they used to call in the old days kremlinology in, in russia examining by minute little statements that come out on party releases and stuff like that the way the wind is blowing i think that's part of the fascination but i just i do love that part of the world uh, very much and i'd like to work there. one of one regret or one of my regrets that i haven't ever worked there but i've done a few programs on it nevertheless and i've I have I've worked, worked in China. I did a documentary, two documentaries in China, on China. Oh, yes. Um, what was it called? Hostility? Harmony and Hostility. Oh, yeah, hostility. That was when I was an uh, American editor, a US editor. And so I went there to look at uh, the relationship between US and uh, China. And that was, I don't think, exactly what it was about. Because it's one of those things with, with the BBC, is the grinding bureaucracy. I proposed this for about 18 months before it happened. And then suddenly there was a latest blip in the North Korea crisis so they wanted me to do it around the relationship of North Korea which is fascinating so I went up to the border uh, of North Korea and watched the trucks thunder all one way from the uh, from China to 
North Korea. And then we went on a boat, right, um, and they take tourist loads of Chinese tourists right up to the border of North Korea. And there are these poor, thin, young teenage soldiers patrolling who are meant to wave the guns at you and get you out of the waters. But you throw a carton of cigarettes at them and they stuff them up their jumper and happily let you go on your way. It's really quite fascinating. Of all the places you've been, Mark, where do you think is the most interesting in terms of political reporting? I suppose Europe in many ways, although a lot of people find... European politics, and particularly the politics of the EU, are drag and difficult to comprehend. I think that's maybe the attraction of it for me, because it is so complicated. And I love that job, being BBC's first Europe editor. But in a way, it's impossible to do. Um, even if you had really good languages, which I don't, try to keep across the politics of 27, 28 countries, and those beyond Europe's borders that you have to keep an eye on, like Ukraine, like Turkey. Um, like other countries that may want to join the EU. It's very difficult. So, you you know, you find you dip in and dip out. And this is what I do the whole time, actually, is, you know, like at the moment I'm obsessed with what's going on in the United States, but I'm not paying much attention to China or, frankly, here. My wife keeps on saying, have you seen on Twitter what, what some minister said? And I said, no, I'm not interested in British politics at the moment. I will be next week. And uh, was a week ago, but at the moment I'm not. So anyway, I digress. But in Europe, we have to sort of suddenly become an expert on Romanian politics for a week, and then it's Spanish politics, and then it's French politics. After a while, you sort of get a broad background, but you have to sort of spend the morning reading up on what's happened in the last week or so. So I find that intellectually really stimulating. And of course, you know, that's a very um, cerebral approach to it. It's just fantastic going to all these different places, from the sophistication of places like Berlin and Paris, to backwater Romani villages in Romania, to Polish mines, to, I remember going on a helicopter trip with the um, uh, the Maltese Coast Guard looking for uh, refugees who might be getting into trouble. You know, just great experiences. You also went down a river in Africa somewhere with Gordon Brown, didn't you, which convinced you you needed to be a foreign correspondent in the first place. What was all that about? Well, it was an African trip that he was taking to various countries about debt relief and about the plight of some of the poorest in those countries, something that he cares very deeply about as Chancellor, when he was Chancellor, he still does. Um, and a man driven by a certain sense of moral mission more than many people would realise. But I just loved the idea that, you know, I wasn't turning up in a suit to work at an office in London, but was sort of editing in hotel rooms and sitting in shorts. It wasn't just the attraction of wearing shorts, but, but the sort of going from one country to another. Trying to, again, trying to get your head around something quite complicated. Overhearing little, having, spending time with Brown. I remember one, I can't remember what country it was, but one of the presidents lent him this magnificent personal jet. And it was, had sort of African furniture, like a throne carved in wood. <laughs> the, uh, the big man, which was in that case Gordon Brown, was sitting in while I was interviewing him opposite. It was an extraordinary experience. And then I remember listening, uh, this was in South Africa. And it was just so typical Brown that um, he hit the nail on the head, but did it in a completely uncharismatic and unfeeling way. He said to them, they were translating it into the local language. And he said to the one who was selling basically skewers of intestines roast, roasted over an open fire. So your real trouble is that you can't get microfinancing. And the translator looked in total panic, not knowing whatever the local language was for microfinancing. 
most people not really knowing what it means in English, I would have thought. But it was just so very Gordon Brown. But anyway, just that sort of hurly-burly of reporting from a very different places, places I've never been, and the informality of it, and working the whole time, and not having to turn up at an office and, and do it like that. It's just really, I thought, oh, I want to do this. And did you get to see another side of Gordon Brown? Because he always came across as rather stuffy and unapproachable. Yes, I think you did. I mean, he, he's, he's not somebody who has a lot of small talk. He's not somebody who unwinds easily. I mean, there are politicians who really let their hair down, but he's not one of those. I always remember at a party I bumped into him and he was, he was telling me about some volumes of, he said, what have you been doing over the holiday? And I burbled on about going to Spain and listening to music or something. And he was telling me about these volumes of American politics he was reading by authors I'd never heard of. So he's a bit like that. But um, yes, I, I remember at that time I was, uh, he, he was thinking about whether to make a big move against Tony Blair. And I was reading the um, novel about Rome, trying to think who it's by. Um, Harris, Robert Harris, called Rubicon. And he sort of said knowingly, Rubicon, ah, yes, crossing the Rubicon, ah, yes, should one do it? Or something, something like that. <laughs> he didn't, of course. And what about uh, Margaret Thatcher? Because you were around in the days when Margaret was at her peak. So you must have yes, met indeed. her. Yeah. So yes, what was she like? Well, a lot of the time you met in a very formal setting and, you know, sort of on, on a rope line or with just microphones, you know, barely allowed to ask one question. The first time I met her, the thing that I was struck by was what a hairy chin she had. But the, the time that I really remember was after she'd left office. <laughs> it's just like, you know, you remember, you, you often find in a, in a situation where you're quite tense, quite nervous, you stare at one thing and I was just staring at her chin. Um, but it was after she'd left office and it was the day that Mikhail Gorbachev fell from power. And she'd done an interview in the day, earlier in the day, but for some reason it wasn't usable. And um, I was the late reporter on duty on Christmas Eve, it was. And so I went round to her house and we persuaded her daughter, Carol, to persuade her to give us an interview, which she did. And the first thing she said when uh, I came in was, well, it is Christmas Eve after all, would you like a drink? So I said, well, yes, it'd be very nice. And maybe wait till after the interview. No, 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 no. Have one now. And Dennis poured this most enormous whiskey, four fingers of whiskey. And I, I'm not somebody who's shy about taking their drink, but I thought, my goodness. And the, but I sort of managed to finish it. And he put me another one, another four fingers of whiskey. Wow. It was so that's the bit I sort of just wonder if I have any memory of the interview at all. But I do remember rather pathetically, she was saying, I'd love to talk to Mikhail. He's a great man. I'd love to talk to him. And I said, well, why don't you just ring up number 10 and tell them to put you through? Because obviously they would. She said, oh, I never thought of that. And you just got the feeling of somebody who'd been so used to power, so used to being surrounded by, you know, being able to snap their fingers and say, get me Gorbachev on the phone. And you don't inquire about, you know, you don't have a diary with his name in it or his number in it. It's not the way things work. But bereft of that, she had no way of thinking even how she could contact him. That's a really poignant insight into the lady that was the Iron Lady. You know, she was... Yes, she was. She was certainly something. If you were going to advise youngsters nowadays how to go about getting into political reporting, what would you tell them? How would you advise them? I suppose there are a number of things I'd say. I mean, it's so different to my day, to our day. Are we the same generation? 
maybe. But um, I mean, one thing that's still probably true is just get your feet under the table if you can. I mean, there's a great line from a Clash song, Career Opportunities. I don't want to make tea at the BBC, but actually making tea at the BBC is not a bad thought if you can. I remember um, when I worked for Radio Air in Leeds, there's a guy called Andy Kershaw who was a with the students' union, he was their ENTS rep and something else at some stage, and he just hung around making tea for Martin Kellner. Both of them ended up on, I think, Radio 2, great DJs. But, I mean, Andy, by just being there, you know, one day the classic thing happened, somebody fell ill or didn't turn up to their shift, so he got a spot on it. And, wow, he was rather good, and, um, and so, you know, progressed that way. But the trouble is that informal contact is very difficult these days. I mean, maybe there are places where it is possible, but certainly within the BBC, I can't, you know, I, I get and slightly resent sometimes, you know, friends saying, can you take my daughter or son into work, show them the ropes? Well, you can't, you know, the BBC has rules about this, let alone get somebody a stint over the summer months. Um, so that sort of officially getting placement or a job is tougher than ever, I think. I think what's easier is just going out and doing it. I mean, obviously, we're living through a difficult and different time when it comes to travelling. But if I was a young journalist or young aspiring journalist and had the money, this is, this is the big rub, I think, is if you can afford to do it, just go somewhere interesting. We've all got, a, well, most people have got an iPhone or, and even recording devices are not that and I'm thinking in radio terms now, are not that difficult. You can do videos on, on stuff. Anybody can make the product these days, depending on their skill level and talent and finding the story. But anybody can have a go at finding a good story. Selling it is more difficult. Mm. But, you know, in my day, in our day, if you couldn't, if you got a story and couldn't sell it to the uh, Evening Standard or the BBC or whatever, that was it. Here you can just, now you can just pump it out on social media. It's not the same route or career path as it was when we were trying to get into radio. Um, and like you, you know, I I did it completely by luck, getting my toe in the door and then then pushing the door a bit a bit harder and and getting in that way. But I think nowadays, I think if if you have the wherewithal and the determination, you can publish your own stuff on your own social media and maybe get noticed that way. What do you think? Yeah, yeah, I do think that's true. I mean, I don't, I'm not a great, uh, I don't understand all, all the, the ins and outs of um, influences and stuff like that. But I mean, clearly people do have followers and just by putting their own things out there. How much that's true of serious journalism, I don't know. I think a lot of people are just talking about products and stuff like that. There's no reason it shouldn't work. I mean, in a way, it's easier if you're outside an organisation. I've just broadcast 13 minutes of something that started off as a 20-minute piece. I'd love to put the full 20 minutes on Joe Biden out there. But within the BBC, you've got rules to go through. You've got procedures to go through. I can't just bung it up there on Twitter. If you're not part of the BBC, you can just bung it up there on Twitter if you've done something. And um, the sort of thing that I've been doing, there's no reason anybody couldn't do it. Well, I mean, hopefully there is a reason they couldn't do it. But no, I mean, no technical reason. Um, so, yeah, I think, I, I think just get out there and then, then it gives you the experience and then somebody may spot it or see what you've done and like it and give you a job. So I think just try, that, try it, and do it and do it for the experience. And do you think that the future of journalism is assured or do you think that we as a, as a profession, the journalism will be more and more put under pressure by commercial considerations? 
I think the future of journalism surely must be assured in that it will continue and will happen in some form. I think the commercial pressures are desperately difficult. And I don't mean, you know, on how just on how you pay for the BBC, which is a big question for us. Um, and I think a big question for the country. But just how you pay for journalism. I mean, a lot of newspapers are really under very serious pressure. I resent it when like, things that I want to read are behind paywalls, but somebody has to pay those journalists. So I, I do find myself having more and more subscriptions. But, you know, not everybody, I mean, it's my job, and in a way I've got to, and I wish the company would pay me to have these, but they don't. But um, nevertheless, I'll do it because I, you know, need to read it and I like to read stuff. I think for more, most people, it's probably more difficult so I don't I think that I think that most newspapers most media outlets will come under increasing pressure and have to look at ways of diversifying and ways of earning money um, whether it's advertising or subscription or whatever but I don't I, you know I don't, I don't necessarily know everybody's I mean there are great things like Vice and Monocle out there I don't know their business model but they seem to be doing pretty well at the moment and as we said you know you can publish on Facebook and Twitter and just to an extent publish on it I said earlier about my worries about local journalism going down the pan. I think that's worrying. So I think I think we want to avoid a situation where it's one or two big conglomerates dominating it. So yeah, I'm 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 not gloomy, but I'm aware of the financial pressures that's going to make it more and more difficult. But I think there's a there's a hunger, a thirst for news and accurate news more than ever. There's a thirst for inaccurate news as well. Mm. But no, and, you know, and the willingness to get inside your own echo chamber, your own bubble, which I, I hate and want to see avoided. But I mean, it's inevitable to an extent. Well, we are unfortunately running out of time, but I just wanted before we go to ask your very wise and uh, considered opinion about what's going to happen, first of all, with the Brexit uh, deadline coming up and what's going to happen this year with the US elections. So in a nutshell, what are your predictions for both of those outcomes? Uh, I think we won't have an extension on Brexit. We will leave probably without a deal. I think that those who, there are a lot of those within the government who are quite enthusiastic about a no deal Brexit because they can see that's the only way that their vision will be accomplished. And I personally think that they feel that they've got a can get away with it more because the it's not about economics, but the economic damage that will occur will be hidden under the what's happened with coronavirus. I think it'll the effects of Brexit will probably be like a pimple, you know, when somebody's hitting you over the head with a baseball bat. So um, I think there will be a hard Brexit. Not definitely, but that's my you asked for predictions, and mm. the predictions aren't always as politicians always say, I haven't got a crystal ball, but I'll uh, attempt to peer into it. Ah, the, the American election is really interesting. As I say, I've just done a piece on Joe Biden and the way that he's trying to make his campaign. He's talking, his people are talking of him as the new FDR, the new Roosevelt, and trying to say that he'll be a transformational pre president, whereas he's always had a steady as she goes, bit of a boring, small key mm. conservative image. Um, and his, their calculation is he needs to fire up the base who were Bernie supporters. Trump's doing badly in the polls. His base doesn't seem to grow. His appeal is uh, not affected among his hardcore supporters, but he's not growing. So it looks like Trump will lose, but I would never put the man down at this stage because there's a 
long way to go before November. And he's, he's, he's a smart campaigner. He's a very, very smart campaigner. Well, you have to give him 10 out of 10 for just sheer bluster and self-belief, if nothing else. Yes, he may be one of those politicians who has a bit of an ego. <laughs> just a bit, yes. So if, if you had to choose another profession, I wonder, what would you choose? I, I don't, I can't think what I'd rather do. Maybe a chef, maybe an A&R man going around listening to music and uh, picking the next great band. I don't, I don't tend to have regrets, but I mean, I don't have any regrets about doing what I've done as a job. Uh, there's nothing I like more, really. Well, you've given us many, many, many hours of informed and entertaining perspectives on politics around the world. So thank you for that. And thank you for joining us today on Inspired Conversations. Thank you for having me. Well, let's hope we can have you back again at some point in the future. Definitely, definitely. I'd love to come back. Thank you. Be happy. Be inspired. With inspirational guests from across the world, this is Inspire Radio. Inspire Radio. Inspire Radio. Inspire Radio.